Hear the word of the Lord. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm going to pause for a moment and minimize the likelihood that I uh, embarrass myself by tripping. I'm fine with embarrassing myself by preaching, but I'm less fine with embarrassing myself um, through tripping. So uh, it's, a, uh, it's a pretty good weekend for me so far. Um, my Indiana University Hoosiers, along with you, Mr. Terry Faith and others. Yes, I heard that. Thanks be to God. Um, yes, God, God blessed us um, with, with a, a blessing last night, a, a big win. Um, and so big sports weekend. It is Super Bowl weekend. So um, there is no men's school tonight. Um, so that has been canceled. So please go and root against the Patriots, okay? So... <laughs> Uh, it'll be a double blessing. We're, we're, we are claiming a double blessing from the Lord. So whether the Rams win, I don't care, so long as the Patriots lose. So <laughs> um, That was hateful. Well, that sounded hateful. Well, it's the truth, though. I'm going to be authentic. I'm one of those transparent pastors. So, uh, <laughs> But no men's school. That's the real reason for all of that, other than I just had to get that off my chest. So. Uh, we're going through the, book, the gospel according to Matthew, uh, and we are considering, um, we're talking about the family tree uh, of Jesus in the earliest years of his life and the um, young family that he was a part of. And uh, so this morning, Matthew chapter 2, here in verses 13 through 18 is where we're at. And so uh, this week, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, though I was uh, unbelieving, yesterday was good, but um, the week has been um, weather, even, even for uh, the Ohio Valley, the weather's been a little, a little wild. Um, you get kind of used to just, you know, random things to where it's like it'll be, you know, 10 one minute, and then by lunch it's 70, you know what I mean? And then you get snow and ice, you know, in a couple of hours and stuff. You get kind of used to just this back and forth nature, but, um, but even this week was was a bit crazy. Now, I have a, it is the winter, but I have a personal policy that I, I try to avoid wearing a coat at all costs, which really bothers, really bothers people. It's Christian freedom, is what I want to say <laughs> to all you coat legalists in here, because people see me and they're like, where's your coat? And it's like, I mean, I've got freedom. Jesus paid it all. I, I don't have to wear a coat if I don't want to. But it just bothers people so badly. 
And I've got a lot of reasons for it. It's not only Christian freedom, but some of it is that I think I'm a much stronger man than I really am. <laughs> and uh, so the, the voice of reason in the home beyond me, but the, my wife said, and I didn't even say anything, but it was like Antarctic temperatures, you know? And she said, um, <laughs> I was getting ready to leave and, and and I was still doing something. So there was a possibility I could have grabbed a coat. She just said, I know you think you're tough, but you really should wear a coat. I was like, well, I am tough. Uh, and so I went, okay, you know, and I, I got a coat. And, uh, and I, I walked outside, and uh, it's bad when you, like, you don't even feel it, but you can see how cold it is, you know what I mean? And it was just like, the cold, it was just mean, and then the wind was just hateful. It was an awful experience. Uh, wearing the coat uh, was bad as well. But, uh, but uh, it was one of those that you're out there in the cold for just a little bit, and it's like it highlights all kinds of things. One, it highlights the coats aren't really helpful. And then two, it highlights it takes a while for the car to warm up. I mean, it's just all kinds of things. It, it it highlights that it, you know, it's, your fingers get numb and then they, they thaw out and it starts to sting and prick and it's just a, a really a miserable experience, which is why you should just stay at home where it's warm, right? And you shouldn't get out in the cold. Um, there's something about the, the harshness of the weather that highlights all kinds of limitations in all, in all um, aspects of life, limitations with your body, limitations with the things that are supposed to keep you warm. But then there's also something about the harshness of the cold that actually highlights some um, the good. I mean, it is whenever you come out and it's, it's been freezing cold and you come in and it's warm, sometimes it's that relief from the warmth that makes you say, wow, that was really cold. You know, to some degree, you can get acclimated to it for a period of time, but then it's when you step out of that, that the harshness of that cold or the harshness maybe of the winter season into the warmth of spring. And you go, wow, that was a rough winter. Wow, that was a really cold day. Wow, it's really warm in here or whatever. There's something about the, the contrast uh, of those environments, the contrast of how cold it was in the start of the week, as well as like yesterday it felt like spring. And I, and I went and, and uh, went and took a hike and it was just, it was lovely, but it was like in some ways the loveliness of the weather was highlighted by the harshness of the cold earlier in the week. And there's something like that in our Christian life as well. There's something about those times of those times of harshness and those times where it's bitter and it's difficult, specifically in our families' lives, that they are able to highlight to us those times of, of peace and those, those good seasons that we take that, um, that we have. But at the same time, we can have a long season of good in our family's life and our own personal life, and we can take for granted how good it was until what? until a season of pain and trial comes in. And the fact of the matter is, is those seasons, the seasons of the difficulty and the pain in our family's life, as well as those seasons where things are good and wonderful and joyous and pleasurable in our family's life, both of those seasons belong to the Lord. And the Lord is present in each one of those seasons. That is... That is the basic message of the Bible from beginning to end, and that is that the Lord is present with his people, regardless of the time, regardless of the season, regardless of what's going on. God is present. You find that theme from 
the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, and specifically in the passages before us today, the presence of God is the main theme of the Gospel of Matthew, as Jonah mentioned. In the, the beginning, Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. At the Great Commission at the end, he says, Behold, I am with you always, from beginning to end. This is about the presence of God. And so we should assume that the same theme will be found here in Matthew. As Matthew writes about, about a season in the life of Mary and Joseph and Jesus to where they, they are escaping to Egypt to flee certain death from the hands of the King Herod. And so it's with these things in mind, and this is my prayer that you'll hear, hear this one point today, and it is this. God's presence is made crystal clear in our family's pain. God's presence is made crystal clear in our family's pain. Now, you may be asking, how is it possible that God's presence is made crystal clear in our family's pain? Well, there are three ways that I believe God's presence is made crystal clear in our family's pain. First, it reveals that all seasons belong to the Lord. First, it reveals that all seasons belong to the Lord. Second, it highlights the power of obedience. It highlights the power of obedience. And then third, it compels us to wait. It compels us to wait. So what we have here and what uh, Meg um, read for us in the beginning is we have um, the flight, um, the flight to Egypt, the escape to Egypt. But what takes place before that is, a, is one of the most famous and celebrated scenes in all of the Bible. It is when the men who Matthew refers to as the Magi come from the east and come west and they visit the Christ child. Uh, most likely these men were from uh, modern-day um, Iran. Most likely they were Persian in nature. And it's really a, it's an uh, unbelievable scene. And look here with me at what Matthew says in Matthew 2, verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So uh, an unbelievable scene. Here we have um, these men are coming. And how many of them there were, uh, we don't really know. I, I'm sorry, not sorry to tell you, there's no real evidence there were only three of them. If it's one of those that you absolutely have to believe there are only three, then that's fine. But um, there's somewhere between two and could be hundreds of them for all we know because they're traveling along a route that would have been very dangerous. And so one of the ways you mitigate the danger is you travel in large packs of people. And it's quite possible there could have been 30 or 40 of them. But you notice there that they come to the house to worship the child. Our Lord is no longer in the inn. He's no longer in a manger. He's grown up a little bit. He may be a toddler. He may be starting to speak. He may be, he may be walking. He may be saying two and three words at a time. But these men see a star and they come and it is an unbelievable scene. Here what we have, though Matthew doesn't bring it out, we have the fulfillment of Scripture. You have the fulfillment of Isaiah 60 where it talks about kings are going to come from the east and they're going to bring gifts of frankincense and myrrh to the Lord. And so here what do they do? They, they bring gifts that you would give to a king. The first worshipers of our Lord are Gentiles. And you, you have a picture of what heaven will look like and that you have a Jewish, Jewish family and Gentiles coming and worshiping the Christ. It's really a beautiful scene. They were overjoyed. And then this happens. 
in verse 13. Look here with me. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The scene changes very quickly. The Magi leave, and then an angel appears to Joseph. And he speaks to him, and he says, Get up and run for your life. Herod found out from the Magi that there was a king in his kingdom. And kings don't take well to rival kings in their kingdom, whether it's a child or not. And so the first persecution breaks out. And in Matthew's gospel, we will see as we travel through it, persecution always comes from one of three places. From families, from other religions, or from political rulers. And here the first one comes from a political ruler, and so here we have this unbelievable and this beautiful scene changes very quickly. And they know about it because an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and speaks to him and says, get out. This is what's going to take place. Now, an angel came to him in a dream before and spoke to him. And Sam Huff taught us that last week. It was an angel who came to Joseph in a dream and said what? He says, Joseph, don't, don't divorce Mary. Take her as your wife, for the child that she has is the Son of God, and you will raise him, and you are to give him the name Jesus. So when God shows up, he speaks to Joseph in a dream through angels, and he did it there, and, and what does he say for Joseph to do? You do this. You need to marry this girl. You need to raise this son. You adopt this son as your own son here on this earth. And then God shows up again through the angel and says, you need to run because things are going to get really bad. So in chapter one, we have the good news. He will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And here in chapter two, we have the bad news, which is not everybody's going to be happy about that. And so he takes off running, and he goes west to Egypt. God was speaking to him before and after the good news took place. This passage here, this flight to Egypt, is very, it's meaningful to me personally for a variety of reasons. I've mentioned um, on multiple occasions that my, uh, my mother is an Egyptian woman, my grandmother, I was Egyptian, and um, for much of my um, childhood, I was in my grandmother's care on a variety of ways. And she was a godly woman, and she taught me what it looks like to be a Christian. And um, there are multiple women in my family tree that were godly and taught uh, me what it was like to be a Christian. But my Egyptian grandmother had the most influence because of her direct care on my life. And she would often tell me, well, you know, our Lord went to Egypt. Our Lord lived in Egypt. And she would often um, talk to me about this passage. Now, there's something that's, something that's kind of humorous about it, if you understand Egyptian culture. And that is that, at least my family, I think it's just part of Egyptian culture. They're, going, they're, they're pretty proud of their heritage. The Egyptian kingdom was pretty powerful. And so they're probably going to try to convince you that all good things come back to Egypt in some way. You know, it's like... 
pizza. Well, you know, it comes back to Egypt. It's like, nah, I don't think so. It's like NASCAR. Well, you know, it comes back to Egypt. And it's like, oh, it's a southern thing, you know. The Rocky Mountains, you know, it just doesn't matter. And it's just like, okay, well, what, you know, whatever. There's another thing that comes back to Egypt. Okay, I've heard this before. But, you know, even though she would do that, I would still listen to her talk about it. Well, you know, our Lord lived in Egypt, and he was there for a period of time because God spoke to Joseph and Mary and told them to go. And and so I would listen to her. I loved her, and and I wanted to hear what she had to say. And whenever I was in her care, it was always evident to me that God was present in my family's life. How could he not be? I'd hear the word. I would, I would watch her pray over us. Uh, into her 80s, I would witness her stay up all night fasting and praying. And so it was just evident to me, God was present in our life because look, grandma is here and, and life was good. Everybody loved her. But then I wouldn't be in her care. And then life got really hard in my family. And what happened after I became a Christian, and I became a Christian when I was 19, is I had this tendency, and even after I became a pastor, and even after I became a pastor in this church, I had a tendency to look at my family story, and I would say, well, it's evident to me that God was with me here, because look, my grandmother was there, praying over me, sharing scripture, and was present in my life. But then when she was gone, or when I wasn't in her care, then life was hard. And so where was God there? I want to ask you, when is the presence of God evident in your life? When is the presence of God evident in your family's life? Is it when things are good? You may be like me in that it, when, when God's answering my prayers, when things are good in the family, when people aren't sick, when there's no conflict, when things just seem to be going good, it is easy for me to say, great are you, Lord. But when, when things are hard, and if people are sick, and if there's conflict, and if there's bitterness, if there's hurt, and if there's pain in my family's life, it is very easy for me just to assume that, well, God must be absent. And so look at that. If I answer the question, what is the evidence of God's presence in my life? It's when things are good and people are healthy, which is a problematic form of the gospel. Now, for some of you, it may not be that way. Your struggle may not be when things are good. It may be that when things are good in your family's life, you drift away and you become indifferent to the things of God. But then whenever pain takes, uh, takes place, then all of a sudden it's kind of a crisis Christianity or something. And so you're all of a sudden concerned about the things of God, and that's just because, well, people are sick and there's conflict and now I really need him. And the truth of the matter is, is that God is present when it's good and when it's bad. God spoke to Joseph and said, your adopted son will save the world from their sins. And God spoke also to Joseph and said, you need to run. It's going to get bad. But the evidence for Joseph was that God was speaking to him, and he was speaking to him regardless of what was going on in his family's life. Whether the Magi were worshiping or whether Herod was searching for babies, God was present. And that's because all seasons belong to the Lord. Second, 
It highlights the power of obedience. So the angel speaks to Joseph, and then this is what he does. Look here with me in verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So God said to him, get up and run. Now, there's some sort of delay that takes place, but you notice how Joseph responds. There's a consistency to this man. There's a consistency to him. That when God says, you marry this girl, what does he do? He marries her. There's a consistency to him. When God says, you name him Jesus, what does he do? Like, do you realize the obedience of Joseph influences every hymn that we'll ever sing? He names him Jesus. And then God says, get up and run. And he doesn't say, well, you know, things are fine at the moment. It was, it was such, we were having such a good time with all these men who came. He gets up and he runs. He gets up and he runs because God says, get up and run. There's a consistency to him. There is no evidence whatsoever. And the Bible completely contradicts this. There is only one sinless man in human history, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one. And with that being said, the writers of Scripture have no problem whatsoever in indicating all the awful things that God's people do. Okay, we, I mean, the sermon series is called The Crooked Tree. And Pastor, Pastor Bobby, whenever he preached, and he, he talked about the genealogy, you, you saw all of the mess that took place in the family line up to Joseph. And, and the writers of Scripture have no problem. I mean, you've got to think about this. The most celebrated men in the Bible, they tell all the awful things that they do, or at least the really bad things. You think that they would, they would cover it up a little bit, but they don't. Abraham is celebrated in the Bible, and yet they talk about, about um, how he lies to get out of situations because he's afraid. You know, Jacob is a man who's celebrated in the Bible, and yet he's a cheater and a thief and, and, and manipulative. Moses is celebrated in the Bible, and yet, and yet he murders a man. David is celebrated in the Bible, and yet what? And Matthew records that in his genealogy. He, he commits adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Has a man murdered? And so the writers of Scripture are not opposed whatsoever of saying this is the bad that these people have done, regardless of how much they're celebrated. So we should assume the fact that Matthew sees this man as what he is. He's a man marked by integrity. He's a man marked by obedience. Like, have you ever asked yourself this question? Those of you maybe who have children, or you're going to have children, or you know you'll have children, or maybe, have you ever asked this question? If something were to happen to me, who would take my kids? Have you ever asked that question? How do you answer that question? Do you answer that question by looking in your family and finding the messiest person? I assume by the chuckles is, well, absolutely not. Do, do, do you find the person whose, whose Christianity is eh, suspect if they're sober? Right? 
Do, do you choose the couple just to say, well, you know, who am I to judge, even though they fight all the time? That's who I'm going to entrust my children to. I doubt that you do. And guess what? That's a godly desire. When God is going to entrust his one and only son, do you realize God could have entrusted him to Jacob, who is a manipulative, cheating individual? He could have. He, he could have entrusted him to David, who from all evidence in the scripture was an awful father. Could have done it. God is God and he'll do what he wants. He entrusts him to Mary and Joseph. And Joseph could have been a meth addict and Mary could have been an alcoholic. And Jesus Christ would have been and will always be the sinless son of God. Regardless of how messy his parents would have been, if they were using heroin in the living room in front of Jesus, he would have been and would always be the completely obedient son of God. But that's not who God chose to entrust his son to. He entrusted his son to a man and a woman who were marked by obedience. It was a powerful thing. The obedience of Joseph and Mary actually, humanly speaking, saved the life of the Son of God from a certain death. He was a toddler. There was no way for him to get away from the certain death that he would have faced in that area. They didn't keep birth records or anything in those days. And he couldn't have escaped Herod's wrath on his own, humanly speaking. at the age that he was. And so God sees to it to move this family and to move this man to be the type of man, to be the type of woman who would raise his son in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Now, what kind of impact do you think that made on Jesus' life? What kind of impact do you think that that made? That his adopted father was, was an obedient man. That his biological mother was a woman marked by integrity and humility. What kind of impact do you think that made? Obedience is a powerful thing. Do you realize that? It says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, that this says, The man who walks in his, in, in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Like a man who is marked by integrity, his children at some point in time will be more happy. Because why? Because he served the Lord. Because he followed the Lord. I mean, you think about it. Like my grandmother, a widow in, well into her 80s, is sharing with me the scripture. Just, it's just normal Christianity for her. There's nothing, there's nothing dramatic about her life. And she doesn't, for, she doesn't see the ripple effect that's taking place by saying to me, you know the Lord, you, you know the Lord um, lived in Egypt for a period of time. She doesn't, have, she doesn't have some sort of vision that one day this boy will eventually stand before people and preach the word. She doesn't have a vision of that. She's just being obedient in the moment because being obedient just means you do what God says when God says it at that time. But it's powerful. If you want to make an impact for generations to come, raise your kids. Be obedient. 
Ask God for help. It's not as if we're going to be able to do this on our own. It's not as if God wasn't working in Joseph's life. I mean, let's be clear. It is the angel who tips Joseph off onto this. It's God who's intervening into Joseph's life saying, go. It's not as if Joseph figured it out on his own. It's not as if his Christianity was divorced from from the the spiritual and the supernatural workings of God. No, he needed God's help, and that's what we need. So let's be a people. We raise our kids, but we say to God, God, please establish the work of our hands. God, please, everything that we have done in faith, please bless that. Let's ask God to bless it. Whether it's you're taking your kids to the park. Like, I'll take my kids to the park, and, you know, I I have to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm being purposeful about spending time with them, but at the same time, I need God to bless those efforts so that they can be raised in such a way that, that, that they are able to see this is what it looks like to be a Christian. God loves me and it's evident. So let's ask God, God, please, everything that I do in faith, bless it. And may the next generation give you thanks and praise for the work that I've done now. There's something powerful about obedience. For those of you Maybe you're, maybe you're the first Christian in your generation. You're the first Christian in your family. I want you to know God's writing a new story through you. Just because you came from a mess doesn't mean you have to be a mess. There's, no, there's nothing that's binding about it. Joseph came from a messy family line, but he wasn't a mess. And maybe, maybe you're the first Christian in your family line. And guess what? God's rewriting your family history. The evidence of God's presence in your family's life is you. And he's taking your family line a different route. And ask God, ask God to make your family line one that is marked from you on as one that is marked by faith in our Lord Jesus. Obedience is a powerful thing. And it creates a ripple effect for generations to come. And then third... It compels us to wait. So Mary and Joseph, they go to Egypt. And this is what it says in verse 15. They go to Egypt where he had stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So they go there and they stay. There's a period of waiting. And they go, and they have to wait. And then the angel speaks to them and says, go back. What was that, what was that like? What was that trip going back home like? like? What kind of conversations do you think they had? How fearful, I wonder, were they? Obedience doesn't mean that you're not afraid. Obedience doesn't mean that you don't have doubts. Obedience doesn't mean that it's easy. And there's a cost to following Christ. But what was that like? Like, Do you you think they were concerned about their, their family? Do you think they were concerned about cousins, nieces, nephews? And so they go back. Why? Because that's what God said to do. I wonder what kind of questions Joseph asked. I wonder what kind of questions Mary asked. 
We don't know much more about Joseph. We'll learn a little bit more next week as Pastor Jonah preaches, but we don't know a lot about him beyond this. This is really summing things up about the man. We know that by the time our Lord dies on the cross, um, Joseph has already passed away. And that's evident because when Jesus was on the cross, in Jesus' culture, if the husband slash father had passed away, it is the responsibility of the firstborn son to care for his mother. And if the firstborn son passes away, it is his responsibility to make sure she is taken care of. And so Jesus Christ at the cross, while he is suffocating, sees to it to make sure that his mother is taken care of. Because Joseph isn't around anymore. But there's all this waiting that took place. They go to Egypt and they have to wait for God to say, come out. There's all this waiting of, of what this all means. Like, what, I mean, honestly, like, what's going on and what does this all mean? You think they asked that question? Like, why is this taking place? It's so evident that God was with us. He's speaking to us. He's entrusted to us his son. No evidence that Joseph got any answers. In fact, the answer to those questions, and, and I want you to know there's times in our Christian life, I'm not opposed to us saying, God, where are you? I mean, that, that's all over the Bible. God, how long is this going to keep on going on? That's all over the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with us asking the questions. The fact of the matter is, is it's up to God on whether he gives us the answer or not. And the other part of it is, is he may give the answer, but we have to wait. And guess what? The answer may not be for us. It may be that the answer is given to our children. It may be the answer is given to our grandchildren. It may be that somebody along years and years later is the one that comes along and sees the answer. Because the fact of the matter is, is it's Matthew sees what God's doing here. He sees that, that God has this pattern that he works in and he sees promises that are being fulfilled. And he, he sees the pattern working out, and he sees the invisible hand of God working, uh, working out over the lives of Joseph and Mary and our Lord Jesus. And he sees that, you know what? God does this thing where, where just like Joseph, he's, he's a man who's marked by integrity and specifically sexual purity, and he hears from God in dreams and in visions. That, that reminds me of... of of Genesis chapter 37 through 50, where there's a man named Joseph, and he's a man who's marked by integrity and sexual purity, and he has to go away to Egypt because of the sinfulness of other people. And he goes away, and humanly speaking, it is the means by which God uses Joseph in the Old Testament, just like Joseph in the New Testament, to, to humanly speaking, save the life of his children, save the life of his family. And then his family lives in Egypt for a period of time, and then they come back out just like Joseph's family lived in Egypt for a period of time, and after the evil king dies, he comes back out. And so Genesis is being fulfilled, and Exodus is being fulfilled, and Matthew looks at it and he says, this is the pattern, but you know what? I see, I see a promise too, because this is the way God works. And he repeats things, and there's patterns, and God's hand is always moving and working. And he says, yeah, yeah, Hosea talks about this. And so Hosea 10 talks about evil kings failing. And he talks about a time will come, Hosea 11 verse 1, where God will call his son out of Egypt. Why? 
Because that's the way God works. So there may be failures that are going on in your family, or maybe your family tree is one that is one long line of failures, but the fact that you are serving the Lord, you are the rewriting of the history. Jesus Christ is the rewriting of the history of Israel, and through you, he is rewriting your family history. So your family doesn't have to be marked by what it was, but what God's doing in you. And what he may be doing is taking you through a period of pain. And then there's this season of waiting. But the hope is that God is present with you through all of that. And then his presence will be made very clear to you one day. That's what the word teaches. That's what we see in the Lord's Supper. See, because Jesus went through a period of pain. And he went through a period of waiting. And he was resurrected by the presence of God. You see, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat of it. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he returns. All of our lives now we are experiencing some sort of pain and we are waiting. But we are waiting for what? We're waiting for the presence of Christ to come into this world. If you are a Christian, I invite you to come forward. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, whichever one your conscience permits. The wine is parked, uh, marked by a piece of twine and there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right. If you're a Christian, please come and partake of this. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you don't Partake of this meal, but I pray that you will consider, consider how you are far from God. And if you want to draw near to him, please ask for God to meet you in this hour and take Jesus by faith. Let's pray together.